All right, well, we're uh, recording this again, testing new technology, and also uh, just so that there's one continuous recording of the sermon, but uh, I hope if you're watching, you'll uh, be blessed through the Word. So I will pray, and we will get started. Father, thank you for this opportunity for your Word to go forth. I pray that anyone who hears this would be exhorted to live more faithfully, and to see you more clearly in the person of your Son, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning reading in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God... You may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And now we'll turn to the verses that we'll be reading and discussing this morning primarily. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and may those who have an ear to hear, hear today. So this message will be in three parts. Those three parts are the setting, what the setting of this text is as the author of Hebrews is speaking and why he's using this example and the way he's using it. The second portion will be this idea of blessing and judgment and that in the same moment in the account of the battle of Jericho, as it's called, we have blessing and judgment occurring. And then lastly, we'll look at the third section, which is repentance and the example of Rahab. And we'll make application along the way uh, under each of those sections. So the first section is setting. What, what is the setting of this text? What's the context? Why is the author of Hebrews uh, saying this in this way at this time? And the first question we need to ask is this, why does he say the walls and not Joshua? He says, by faith the walls. It's funny because the walls can't have faith, they're not people. Growing up with the name Joshua, you you learn to uh, endure certain types of ridicule or at least jesting or joshing, as it were. Uh, People would say to me, Oh, your name's Joshua. Did you fight the battle of Jericho? And I always had to respond in one way or another, you know, especially if they're older, you don't want to disrespect them. But I just wonder because no one does that with any other name in the Bible, unless it's extremely unique. Um, We have a few Pauls in our congregation, but no one says to them after they introduce themselves, Oh, did you ever persecute and kill Christians and put them in prison? Or with David, imagine the things we could say if we're introduced to a David. So in the one place where the author of Hebrews could have mentioned my namesake, Joshua, in the hall of faith, as it is called, uh, he doesn't. So it's a little bit frustrating for me, but it's implied at least. And further, Joshua has already been mentioned in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, if Joshua had given them rest, referring to the rest for the people, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him, from his. So I think what the author of Hebrews is doing with Joshua is kind of a sub-theme throughout the whole book is that 
we see Joshua leading the people across the Jordan, being instrumental in the conquest of the land and giving the people a type of rest, but not full rest. And so we look back at Jesus and his work on the cross, but also forward to his return and bringing all the people in to God's final rest. So I think at this point in this passage, in the point of the passage, in the context of the whole book, is this, that we are almost home. We are like this desert generation, those who had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting for their opportunity to enter, and they're just on the brink of entering the promised land. We are almost home. We're just on the other side of the Jordan, as it were. The early church fathers actually saw the narrative of Joshua as a a type of an overlay for the revelation to John, as a leader brings his people into the land of promise. So I think that's what's going on here. So while I wish the author had included my namesake for good measure, the idea here may not be Joshua alone. It is not merely by faith Joshua caused the walls to fall down. That's not really what's going on. It's also the people. The people marched around the city. It was Joshua's faith, to be sure. Joshua had faith in his obedience, but the people followed him. We'll discuss that more at the end. And we have to mention, at least for a little bit, uh, the big skip. Uh, there, there is a big skip or a, a, a skipping forward that happens in Hebrews 11. So if you look at verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And then verse 30 begins, by faith the walls of Jericho. So is there a big uh, event in the life of the people of God or the life of uh, those of faith even between the crossing of the Red Sea and entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua? For sure, there's a ton that he just skipped over. There's no mention of Sinai here. And part of the reason I'm bringing this up, that we're talking essentially about a blank, a space, just the press of the space bar. They didn't have those back when the Bible was written. I didn't know if you didn't know that, but we're talking about just a space between a few letters here. And part of understanding the Bible is not just understanding what is there, but understanding what's not there and why it's not there. So there's no mention of Sinai. He gets that into chapter 12, and he's already alluded to it as the mountain in chapter 8, verse 5. He says, For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So as I've said before, and it bears repeating, it's, we, we must remember this. The author of Hebrews almost has a negative view of the law and the Sinaitic covenant. It's not, it's not negative in the sense that it is uh, evil or sinful. Paul makes that very clear. It's not sin and it's not bad, the first covenant or the, the law given at Sinai. But since the new and greater Moses has come, that Moses himself prophesied would come, and since the new and better promises have been made, to go back to the first Moses and back to the first covenant with the people, that would be sin. It was right and good and true for that time, and it was what they they related to God through that first covenant. But now that the new and greater has come to go backwards would be sinful. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse uh, 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In the context, that doesn't mean leaving holiness in general. There were, of course, some that the author is writing to that he had concern for them that they were just going to live sinful lifestyles. But the main temptation for these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to is that they would abandon Christ and go back to the old way of Moses to be just good Jews again. 
So this neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That doom, that, that uh, fearful expectation of judgment he discusses is for those who go back to the old way. So, it would be like uh, insisting on sending a message by telegram nowadays. That technology is old and gone. And I don't, you could probably go somewhere in the world where you could still send a telegram. But you, you have to use a telephone now. And you can't even use uh, the old types of telephones that would hang on the wall. You, you've got you've to move along as, as technology moves along. That, that's somewhat of an example of how it works with God's covenants. As the new and the better comes along, you have to go with the new and better. You can't, you're, you're not grandfathered in, as it were. What if he had said this? Or, or what if the people had said this? Here's an example of why you can't just stay the way things are with the way God works with us. They were given the law. Think of this. They were given the law at Sinai. And imagine if they had said, well, we don't mind remaining in the wilderness. We have the law. We're going to keep the law. But we don't want the risk of taking the land. We don't want to be around those nations. We don't want to kick them out of, of Canaan. We'll just stay in the wilderness and be the faithful people of God. What do you think would have happened? They would have been sent right back into the wilderness. And that's the other part of this big skip. There's 40 years of wandering and a lot of stuff that happens during that 40 years. They were turned back right at the moment of gaining the land of promise. They did not believe God. The same people that crossed the Red Sea in faith, according to verse 29 in chapter 11, are the same ones who would not believe God. And this is somewhat of a side note, just to come to understand the God that we believe in. Reflect on His character in this. His wrath and His anger towards the people and His judgment of the people is intensified not in situations of idolatry, but in a lack of trust. He certainly responds with, with plagues and, and disease and, and even killing many of the people who reject him. I mean, the situation with the golden calf comes to mind. But each time God forgives, Moses intercedes, God forgives, the people move on, and finally he brings them up to the point of entering the land of promise, and they say, no, there's no idol involved, at least one that you can see. Their main sin was unbelief, and at that point, God said, no more. His patience was done with that generation. And so there's, there's somewhat of a big skip here in that the, the people that we see in verse 29 are not the same people necessarily as the ones who enter and take Jericho. It's important for us to remember. Those hearing the author of Hebrews first in their setting would have been able to connect the dots and remember all that great detail. But only the children or only those under 20 were able to go in. So the people change. It's as if they had a, uh, the, those who had to die in the wilderness, it's as if they had a, a kind of a Stockholm syndrome with Egypt. There's always a remnant that God keeps for himself. But those who rejected him and would not believe in his ability to deliver them into the land, to deliver those enemies into their hands, he sends back into the wilderness and they have to die. But all those under 20 have to wander around in the wilderness with them. Does that seem fair? Think of your life. Think of many characters in the Bible like James, the brother of John. Does it seem fair for your life to not work out the way that you would prefer it because of God's greater purposes? However, they're wondering, those who are 20 and under, who were able to go into the land, 
They didn't live there as a marauding band of rebels. They became a people of faith. It was as if the fires of the wilderness forged their faith. Those people were faithful to the Lord for the entire life of Joshua until he dies and the lives of the elders who survived Joshua. The people were faithful to the Lord. It wasn't perfect, but they were faithful. And they were able to do that in part because their faith was forged in this way. Joshua even warns them about the effect of ease and blessing. When they finally come into the land, he tells them, once things start going really well for you and there is peace in the land, you're going to drift away from the Lord. So there's a, a few points of application here under this first section of setting. First, your soul is more helped in difficulty than in ease. What wilderness are you in? You shouldn't waste it. We have a lot of uncertainty in our time right now. There's, there's upheaval, there's a virus, there's regulations going back and forth, and our lives are just up in the air. Should we rattle the saber and insist on the world behaving itself? No. Rather, we should wait patiently for the coming of our greater Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus himself. What ease are you seeking that hinders growth? And yes, ease often hinders growth. You should forsake that. Peace and serenity, at least as far as the world defines it, wages war against your soul. Number two, remember just how much at odds this world is with the kingdom of God. There is a wrong way to feel at odds with the world. We, we, we saw this a little bit in, in the, the people who did not believe God and had to perish in the wilderness. I mean, you can imagine they had some degree of hatred towards the Egyptians. They were slaves there, for goodness sake. But when things got really tough, they wanted to go back. Do you remember the melons that we had, the fish, the meat, the cucumbers? It's almost silly to hear them complain. Yet, what do we want? You might feel at odds with this crazy world out there. And you may feel that your life in following the Lord is at odds with the wickedness of the world, but do you want the very same things that the world wants? 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with it all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What will our greater Joshua find you longing for and clinging to when he crosses the Jordan with the saints in glory to make and take what is rightly his? What will he find you doing? It's as Jesus even says to his disciples, yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? May we be there to answer a hearty yes. And number three, don't get comfortable. Do not let what is comfortable in your thinking about God and your following Him up to this point cause you to not follow Him still. Think of the people. They could have just been comfortable staying in the wilderness on the other side. We don't want the war. We don't want the conquest. We don't want the, the testing of our faith that's going to happen every day as we take the land. We can just stay in the wilderness and be faithful to God. No. You must follow Him still. Further up and further in now. 
Your desire for heaven, brothers and sisters, is tested or shown by your desire to know and obey the Lord more here and now. If you're not striving to some degree, I want to be very gracious here. I'm not saying that everyone has to be fully committed, full tilt all the time, or it calls into question your Christianity. I'm saying you've got to have some degree of striving, even if it is very weak, some degree of striving to obey him more, to know him more. And if that's not the case, then I'm sorry, you're most likely not on the road to the promised land. You can't say that you love Jesus or you will one day love Jesus perfectly if you're not trying to love him that way now. It kind of shows what's in your heart. If you have truly come to know him and have him, then there's, there's this degree of holy dissatisfaction with the amount that you have of him and know of him. So that's part one, setting. This is why I think it's happening here. It's a summons to us. It's a summons to his original readers to not be like the generation that perished, but to follow the generation that followed Joshua. So section two, or part two, blessing and judgment. We see in verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And before we get to this idea of blessing and judgment happening simultaneously, we need to talk about this faith. Because this faith sets the stage for the blessing and judgment. A few questions. First, how was this by faith? Was it not by obedience? Joshua was told by the Lord explicitly what he should do. And the people obeyed the command of Joshua and did it. And as far as the narrative concerning Jericho is concerned in the book of Joshua, there's no mention of the attitude or the heart of the people. Some might have thought it was rather silly or improbable. Jericho was a very formidable city. Some might have been just going along to go along, not stand out. But there's no mention of grumbling, no complaining about the repetition of circling the the city. There's no grumbling, as we see in Exodus so many times, about the seemingly ineffectiveness of the strategy. There's just simple, quiet obedience. Nothing remarkable, necessarily. They just obey. So was it through their obedience, or was it through their faith? And don't you see the point here? Their faith was active in their doing. And their faith was completed in their works. So immediately we can apply this to ourselves. We must have the same kind of faith that is active. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a guess. Faith is not a wish. It is not a fancy or a fantasy or a dream. Faith is not a shot in the dark or a crossing of the fingers or just hoping for the best. It is a deliberate action of the will to believe God, to take him at his word. And therefore, because of that trust in God, because of that believing God, because of that will to follow him, we therefore therefore trust and obey more and more. Is that your experience of faith? Is that what you have when it comes to Christ? Often I will say in my preaching or when I conclude, when I come back and read the benediction, I'll say something like this. May today be the day of salvation. And I'm not just making a wish like we blow out the candles or blow the dandelion. I am summoning you, yes, even commanding you to believe in God today. To resolve from the depth of your soul, the center of your being, to trust God and obey Him because of that trust. The second question or set of questions we can ask about this faith is, how how was it by faith? Was it not God? You ever wonder why God chose to defeat the first great city they encountered this way? He commands them to conquer in the normal way every other city. 
that they encounter in Canaan. And with Jericho, it wasn't so much a battle, it was a slaughter. And God miraculously caused the walls to fall down outwardly flat. So, here's my question. In this one act that God clearly did in causing the walls to fall down, why does the author of Hebrews connect it to the faith of Joshua and the people? You see that God is at work most when His people follow in faith-filled obedience. No, He does not depend on our faith-filled obedience to do anything. He doesn't need us to complete His plan. However, however, some of you really need to hear this. If the people had been faithless, He would have not just given Jericho into their hands anyway. No, He would have likely sent them back across the Jordan to wander in the wilderness again. However many years, who knows? So this shows a beautiful balance between God's sovereignty, His matchlessness, His sufficiency, and at the same time, our responsibility and inadequacy. The sufficiency belongs to God alone. Yet He insists, He insists, and God does insist on things. He insists that His working be in certain ways. He insists that the progress of His kingdom be through the faith-filled obedience of His people. There is no other way. As you and I follow Him, that is how He builds His kingdom. If we will not obey, He will raise someone else up who will. He's not dependent on any person. But the invitation to us is to be that one who will obey, who will be filled with faith, and so obey. This is a type of zeal that we need to have as an immediate application of this. We must be that one. Some of you, this very day, may need to be done with laziness. You need to gird up your loins and, and, and in your mind and in your life. And be done with the things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Some of you may think that you're too old or too young or too burdened or too uneducated. Is that not part of the point of Hebrews 11 that he uses all kinds of people? If only they will believe. If only they will have faith. If only they will obey in line with that faith. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says it this way, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards Him. You can be that person. And you can start today. It's no long process to get to that point. You can today decide that this will be the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, and I will trust in Him and obey Him. The Lord, in His eyes, will find you and infuse you with divine power to accomplish His work, to build His kingdom. May today be that day. So, through faith, the stage is now set for blessing and judgment. Through faith, being active in the obedience of the people, blessing and judgment both come together in the exact same event, in one singular moment. In those few short, whether it was a minute or a few seconds that it took for the walls to lean over and fall down outward, God blesses His people by delivering the wicked city of Jericho into their hands, as it were, he, he kind of burst open the gates to the promised land as that one city stood in their way. But at the same time, the disobedient, the ones who persisted in evil, the ones who did not repent, are judged. So what does this have to do with us? What, what is it? How, that, that was in the Old Testament. That was the promised land. We're not in Palestine. Uh, what does that have to do with us in the church today? It's different covenants. Well, as I said earlier, we can see the story of Joshua kind of as an overlay for what Jesus is going to do when he returns. 
it might be that through our faith, as we hasten the day of the Lord, we are working towards our own blessing and toward the judgment of the world. It's as the author of Hebrews has already said regarding Noah, that as he's building the ark in obedience, he is condemning the world. So as we obey, it works condemnation. This is prefigured in Jesus. In John 12, 31, he says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So as Jesus is saving his people, as he's going to the cross, suffering under the wrath of God, even as evil men and the enemy himself are are stirred up against him through God's providence, even in that moment of blessing for future generations and salvation is the same event that brings judgment against the enemy himself. It is his obedience, his faith-filled surrender to the will of God that brought the most devastating blow to the world, its evil, and its malicious ruler. And it is no different for us. We are to follow the same pattern. It's not a spoiler for me to tell you that this is exactly the application that the author of Hebrews gets to finally in chapter 13. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. And just as the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15, the last verse of that awesome chapter, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And you might be uncomfortable with this idea of our faithful obedience being the means that God uses to set up the vindication of his people. But I hope that in a year like this, that's kind of less the case. Do you feel like Jesus? He says, I have fire to cast on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Do you echo with the martyrs under the altar of incense in the Holy of Holies in heaven right now who cry out to the Lord day and night, how long, O Lord, will you let this go on? And so we trust and obey. In our faith-filled obedience, God will set the stage for our final blessing and the final judgment of the world. He will correct all injustices. He will right all wrongs. And He will cause justice to flow down like a mighty river. Your, your life is meaningful in the preparation for that day. And every day of your life is meaningful as preparation for that day. It's not just the high points of your life. So a few points of application for this idea of blessing and judgment happening simultaneously. Knowing that our faith-filled obedience brings blessing for the people of God and judgment for the world, then, number one, we should take our lives very seriously. Because it's not in vain. There are real eternal rewards and real eternal consequences for everything we do. There is nothing really simple Therefore, about faith-filled obedience to the Lord, even if it is really outwardly appearing simple. The most cosmic scale consequential things that you will probably ever do are the things that you do every day, if they are done in faith. Yes, even down to the very mundane, like washing the dishes, filling up your car with fuel. Done in faith, they set the stage for blessing and judgment. Because what did the people do? They just walked. They didn't have to scheme the battle of Jericho. They didn't work it out in a cosmic scale with angels or however God did it to cause the walls to fall down. They just walked. But in faith and in obedience... Number two, knowing that this is how God works to set up blessing for his people and judgment for the world. Number two, we should know that the world will hate us. This is seen in the hatred of the Egyptians for the people. And it is seen in 
or we could at least assume in their hatred and fear of the Israelites, those who lived in Jericho. Our obedience, our faith in God, as part of the basis of their condemnation, represents an existential threat to them. As they persist in disobedience. Do you think it's, it's merely happenstance that consistent faithfulness to Christ has never been acceptable in any culture? And if you think it is now in the United States, then you probably don't know what consistent faithfulness to Christ really is. It's always offensive. And do you think that the enemy is not working frantically to lull the church to sleep, to be satisfied with an acceptable version of Christianity in the public sphere? Your life is a sermon if it is consistent faithfulness to Christ, and it summons them to repent. It, it holds out the day of the Lord as coming. And so if true, it mandates them to repent, to change. And if they don't, it represents a threat to their own existence. So they will hate us as we are faithful. Number three, knowing that God works this way to bring blessing for his people and sets the stage for judgment through our faith-filled obedience, then... Any great or grand change that we would wish to see for the glory of Christ in our church, in our city, in our state, in our nation, will not be through political means. It will not even be through true and good patriotism. And I believe you should be a patriot. I believe that is biblically consistent. But if we want to see grand sweeping change for the glory of God, it will be through God empowering us for simple faith Filled obedience. It's just as Paul says in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The enemy would rather you vote and protest and lobby and even get all the good policies and laws passed if in doing so he can cause you to divert your attention away from loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. If he can get you to divert your attention away from repenting of sin, to divert your attention away from cultivating joy in God, if he can divert your attention away from being patient in suffering, as we hope in God, etc., etc., so many more. Number four, knowing that God works this way to set the stage for our final blessing and the judgment of the world through our faith-filled obedience, then do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Things will go from bad to worse. That's a promise from the Scriptures. And in a way, that is part of the plan. This world is not... Lost and dying. I really wish people would stop saying that. This world is cursed by God and dead because of sin. And it is currently under the power of the evil one. But (laughs) do not lose heart. Knowing that our faith-filled obedience is the way that God sets the stage for blessing us and judgment of the world, we can hope in God as we obey, even if He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of the most encouraging words ever spoken or ever written, John sixteen thirty three. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we do not lose heart. Number five, knowing that God works this way to bring our final blessing and judgment of the world, setting the stage for those things through our faith-filled obedience, then we really need to go all in in our lives on the return of Christ. In our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, go all in on the return of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, if, if that is not the case in your heart and mind, I simply don't know how else to help you than to point you to that. And if you will not set the return of Christ as the beating center of your hope and trust, I don't know how to help you. Because we don't have any other hope. There's, there's nothing else for us if that is not going to happen one day. If that day is not going to happen, or if it's just figurative, Or if it's just a metaphor, we have no hope. If our greater Joshua, the Son of God, who was given this very same name as this first Joshua, because he will save the people from their sins, if he is not coming back to stand in the flesh to judge the living and the dead, then all of this that we do as a church on Sunday mornings or in the middle of the week and all that we do reading books and studying theology, it's really just very silly. And we'd be better off as people to just sell it all and go join a social club. But if that day is real and it is true That every eye will see him, and every knee will bow to him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Then the one who lives his life or her life to make ready for that day, even if it means sacrificing all of our comforts, all of our preferences, all of our dreams, all of our talents to prepare for that day, then he is no fool and she is no fool. Rather, the one who does not prepare in that way for that day The one who doesn't see the return of Christ as a big enough deal to summon a life of following Christ in everything, then he is the fool. She is the fool. Part two. I'm sorry, that was part two. Part three is this idea of repentance that we see in the life of Rahab. So if our faith-filled obedience brings blessing for the people of God... And judgment for the world, if that's how God is setting the stage, then is there any hope for the world? Is our message and our effect only that of setting the stage for judgment for them? And what of you this day as you've heard this message? Maybe as I've, as I've tried to passionately explain and appeal to you to live your life for Christ in this kind of faith, to, to obey Him and prepare for that day. Maybe as I have said these things, you've realized that this is not your heart for Christ. You don't have that hope in Him. You are in the world. Maybe that's alarming to you, as I've explained that, our, that those who trust in Christ as they obey are, are setting the stage for your judgment. What, what, is there any hope for you? If you're a part of the world, a part of this doomed city, as we see previewed in Jericho, living in sin, having set your heart against the coming and conquering Jesus, what are you to do? Put simply, as we see in the life and example of Rahab, we are to repent. Verse 31, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In that moment of blessing and judgment, repentance is the first step of faith that moves one from the world to the people of God. In one act of faith-filled obedience, Rahab, a prostitute, is not only rewarded with her life, but her whole family is spared. And further, she's given a place with the people. And this is after the wall has come down. If you want to see with me in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua 6 beginning in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab her father, her mother, and brothers, and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp in Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron that they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. 
And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom God sent out to spy out Jericho. And further still, we don't have time to really expound on the significance of this, but she becomes part of the line of Christ. Matthew is the only one who mentions it, but if it's the same person, and I think that very likely, then this Rahab, this non-Hebrew woman of ill repute, is the great-great-grandmother of the one and only King David. So there is hope. All of those who are in the world, even those who are our oppressors, even those who are our even those who are great and grave sinners like Rahab, it is yet not too late to repent. Is God showing favoritism to Rahab, giving her a special opportunity to repent more than the rest? No. Let's look at this word disobedient. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Disobedient to what? This is fascinating. To what were they disobedient? They didn't receive the law. They weren't there at Mount Sinai. So what are they disobedient to? Let's look at Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan For the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. It's fascinating. They they, they learn that this people has come across. And they, they understand, according to this passage, that it was the Lord who did that. But that's not all. Let's go back even further to chapter 2, verse 8. Joshua 2, verse 8. But the men... Lay down, but before the men lay down, this is as Rahab is hiding the the spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given to you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us all, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea 40 years ago. Dried up the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to the destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. That as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will do kindly with me in my father's house and give me a sure sign so that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even unto death, if you do not tell this business of ours, if you don't rat us out, essentially, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Just to hear how Rahab is speaking of the knowledge that all the people had of what God had done for this people, they knew. And that's why they were disobedient, because they knew God's work. They didn't have to receive the law, they didn't have to read the Bible to know what they should have done. They could have repented, and we don't know what it would have looked like because none of them did necessarily. It might have looked something like Nineveh that we see in Jonah. But no, Jericho and their leaders, they doubled down. They doubled down on their defenses. They trusted in themselves. They made alliances, some of the cities did, after Jericho. They trusted in themselves against the Lord and his people. They would not surrender. And that is what repentance is. Repentance is laying down your arms, saying, I am wrong, God is right, forgive me. So for us, for now, we are in this time of waiting. Then those brief hours that the spies are in Jericho, spying out the situation, and Rahab is speaking to them and and gaining salvation for herself and her family. That's kind of what is happening now. God's message is at work in the doomed city, in the city of destruction, as John Bunyan puts it. 
Here we are, and his message is here. The messengers are here, but they're not secretive this time. They're proclaiming the message of salvation, even as I am speaking to you. So repent. It's not yet too late. So a few points of application for this last section, and we'll be done. Number one, no life. No life that you have lived in the past prevents you from finding obedience if you will repent. There are certainly some sins that harden your mind against repentance, but if you are willing to repent, then nothing will prevent you from finding forgiveness if you will surrender, if you will embrace and trust in the goodness of the coming and conquering greater Joshua. Friend, You may have lived Rahab's life or worse. That is no barrier between you and God's grace if you will turn and trust Him. Repent today. Trust in Him. Please. Make peace with Him while peace may be made before He comes. And it is everlastingly too late. He may come for you or he may come for all of us. But either way, it's going to be a hundred years or less. Think about that. To those who are hard-hearted, just like the people in Jericho who did not repent, the disobedient, to you I say, you know. The law is written on your hearts. And you know that you owe your life to whoever it is who created you. And even if you don't believe in the Creator, you know that right and wrong are meaningless unless there is a judge. We could go to Romans 1 and I could explain to you how you know, but deep down I don't really even need to. You know. Don't be like the disobedience and persist and double down on your resistance If you do that, the only thing that waits for you is destruction. You know. And lastly, to my beleaguered, weary, frustrated, few in number, weak, sorrowful, confused brothers and sisters, listen to the voice of our great and coming King, our greater Joshua. He is even now marshalling his armies on the other side of the Jordan. To come and take what is rightly his. He says to us, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the way. And giving us a way to repent. And a message to give to those who are in unbelief. And in disobedience so that they might be saved. May today be the day of salvation for many. In Jesus' name, amen.